Hi everybody, Mike Claiborne here and welcome to another edition of ClaibsOnline.com. Well, we're going to do something that's going to be really fun. You know Mike Milbury, you probably have seen him on NBC, you probably watch him as a player if you're that old, and you know he's a colorful cat to say the least. More importantly, he's a really good hockey man and a good person, and I had a chance to catch up with him, and man, do we have some things to talk about. We've got some good stories for you. We've got a lot of fun things to talk about, and we hope you're going to be part of it because we're going to visit with Mike Milbury of NBC Sports when we come back after this. Munganass St. Louis Acura would like to extend a huge thank you to our healthcare workers and first responders by offering them several service specials, including a free interior detail cleaning. You can call them today to make your appointment and let them help you while you are helping our community. Find them online at stlouisacura.com or give them a call 314-822-2872 for Munganass St. Louis Acura. Welcome once again, everybody. The podcast is underway. I'm Mike Claiborne, and we have a chance to visit with a good friend of the National Hockey League. We're going to talk some hockey today, and he is Mike Milbury, who was a really good player in college at Colgate, had a great career in the NHL, worked in the front office, and now finds himself as a broadcaster with the NBC Network. Uh, Mike, first of all, it's great to hear your voice, and uh, I'm glad to hear things are safe with you and your family. Yeah, we're, we're lucky. We're, we've been... Uh untouched unscathed so far and hopefully it'll stay that way and hopefully somebody will some genius will come up with a vaccine and settle this thing once and for all sooner the better for as far as i'm concerned so let me ask you what went through your mind when you heard that the nhl was shutting down i wasn't surprised i mean the build-up was there Uh, i think first things first everybody has to stay safe and there was concern clearly across the board and the NBA sort of beat the NHL to the punch by just a little bit, but it was, it was a timely shutdown and now uh, hopefully it'll be a timely startup. Yeah. No kidding about that. You know, we're coming up on a couple months since anybody's played a game or anything. So what's kept you busy? And also when I talk about being busy, what have you accomplished around the house? Did you have a chore and which chore is still waiting for you? (laughs) That's funny. Uh, we were just going through a complete kitchen renovation. So that means you're going to take everything out of the kitchen, every pot and pan, every stool, every everything, and pack it into the garage or the basement or whatever. And we got it finished just, just days before everything shut down. So the process of getting everything back into order was uh, extensive. The, the basement has never been cleaner. <laughs> Uh, we had to have somebody come in and do some electrical work on our alarm system. And for the first time maybe ever, I wasn't embarrassed to let him in the basement. <laughs> so so you, you have been a busy man. Good for you. And I'm sure your family yeah. appreciates the effort there. Hey, you yeah, know- I'm the I'm head chef and bottle washer here, too. My wife is the baker. I'm the, I'm the chef. So that keeps the, I have two boys back from college, uh, one Uh-oh. six four, one six three, and they – <laughs> they eat like you can't believe. So that does keep me busy. Plus, I got fortunately, I got Netflix and I can binge watch a few things. And we talked a little bit earlier about The Last Dance. That's been fun to follow. So read a little bit. But can I tell you that I, I'm sick of this and I'm ready to move on with the rest of my life. We're sort of wasting time here, aren't we? Well, there's no question about that, along with the fact of trying to maintain some sort of physical conditioning. 
you know, there are going to be some people, Mike, when this is over with, we may not recognize because they've gained 20 or 25 pounds. I'm just telling you now. Yeah, I think some hockey players are in that boat too. But, uh, you know, I fortunately have a little upstairs gym and a, and a little stairmaster that I can use and a few free weights. So, I'm, you know, hey, listen, I'm no slim gym, but I didn't turn into uh, a walrus yet either. Well, keep up the good work on that front. Hey, you know, it sounds like the NHL wants to come back. Um, do you think it will? And what do you think it's going to look like? Because th- this has been a, a very long layoff, unlike an off season where guys could go out and get a sheet of ice and skate and work out and do things of that nature. Uh, that's not as much in play for many players. So what do you think it's going to look like? It's a real challenge for for players to find their skating legs. It's going to take them three weeks anyway of training camp for me to get them back to some kind of skating and game shape. It's just the mechanics of skating is so different than, than running or riding a bike that it's, uh, you got to give it some time. So guys that really work at it, you know, maybe it's the younger guys or maybe it's the older guys that get a break and get a chance to retool that, that take advantage of this. But the teams that come back in good shape and that have spent the time that they have to in the gym, and then take advantage of that three-week training period are going to have the, the clear advantage. So, you know, a team like Tampa Bay, you know, they're going to wind up with Steven Stamkos back in the lineup. That's a kind of a big plus, wouldn't you say? No, I don't think there's any doubt that they make themselves a player at the door. There's no question. And there are probably some other teams, and the Blues will be in that category because they're going to have Tarasenko back. And there's some other teams that are probably happy to have some guys who probably were nicked up that should be healthy enough to make a contribution. Hey, you know, if, if with this going on and when the league comes back, is there a chance that the NHL may take a look at the game and make some other on-ice adjustments, or do you think the game is in a pretty good position now? I think the game's in a very good position right now. It's You know, we've taken out some of the, uh, the fighting physical stuff that was once so big a part of the game, even though there's some there's physicality still we all know that the trend has been towards skill and speed and there's room now for the little guy in the game. Uh, I think the playoffs have been well received over the last few years. I think there's not much reason, you know, when you get a guy like Charles Barkley says he, the favorite sport to watch in the playoffs is, is hockey. That says something about the sport. Um, I I think it's, uh, I think it's in a good place. I don't think it needs to change a lot. Uh, And I think, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, with that said, is there a rule you'd like to see go away or one that should be enforced more? I'm not a fan of the uh, delay of game penalty. I mean, used to have a call for that if somebody thought it was intentional, but most of these are completely unintentional. But that kind of bothers me. And the other one is the the slashing calls that go stick to stick. I mean, if you you should be able to whack a guy on the stick. If you hit him on the hand, it's fine. You get your two minutes in the box. But, you know, we've kind of uh, at times gone to the too soft for me uh, on occasion, and that, that one is one that sticks in my craw. Interesting you say too soft because you played in an era in your 12 years, uh, and I think it was part of the greatest era of the game because of this. There was a lot of skill a whole lot of toughness, versatility, and there was accountability. I'm not sure if all those things exist today. I mean, these players are certainly skilled. I don't think they're as tough. 
So when you look at the game in that light, what what comes to mind? Because I, I, I you know, I always hear people say, well, you know, they're bigger, faster, stronger. And I always respond, if they were that great, then how come we don't have more records going down? How come somebody hasn't scored more than 92 goals? How come we haven't seen other guys uh, set some other scoring records along the way, especially with so much open ice because of the fact of the rules and some of the other things and the smaller guys can play and they're skating better? Why haven't we seen more of that? Because uh, coaches require teams to play defense first. Uh, they want to own the backside of the, the red line. If anything that happens in defensive zone has to be according to the, the rules of each and every coach. And they found ways to pack it in in front, block shots, slow things down. Um, I wish there was a way to have man-on-man coverage. That would make things a lot looser for me and I think a lot more interesting but I think it's it's really you can you can point a finger or credit if you wish the coaches for making sure that their guys are uh, are checking they're in their lanes their sticks are in the right position uh that really is what has I think made a difference uh before in our era a system was the third guy in the defensive zone is high that was it and, but now that seems so Neanderthal. Uh, the guys are technical. The video is so good. I mean, you have it right there on the bench. You can correct mistakes. You're you're held to a different level of accountability. It's not so much physical accountability as accountability for being responsible defensively. You, you know, you, you touch on defense, and I I think when when you played and certainly before you. You know, you may have had one or two guys on your team, that, defensemen, that would block a shot. I remember a guy like Al Arbor. Uh, the Flyers used to have a guy, Brad. Uh, Brad, uh, his name escapes me, but there, Brad Marsh. Brad Marsh, and, and you know, those are guys. You, you had one or two on your team. Now forwards are looked upon to block shots and get a stick in the lane and do things of that nature. So you, you're, you're spot on as far as the defense. It's more team defense now than what it used to it be. Is. It is. I think John Tortorella was in large part responsible for the shot blocking approach. I mean, he just demanded it from everybody on the team. And that sort of has snowballed uh, across the league. You, you, you know, we had guys in my time, which they would do the flamingo, you know, the oh, one yeah. leg up. And, you know, just, <laughs> it was, you know, they didn't want to get hurt that way. And I can't say as I blame them, but uh, it's the price you pay. And hey, the blues, the Blues certainly uh, paid that price last year on their way to a championship. I'm going to get to the Blues in a second, but I want to ask you about coaching. You, you were behind the bench, but you played for one of the more colorful guys, but also a good coach in Don Cherry. And my good friend John Winsick used to tell stories about John Don Cherry and and some of the things. If he thought the game was getting a little out of hand, he would ask John would he like to go out for a skate. You know, he would just suddenly be able to get a guy's attention. Give me a good grape story because you, you played for him at a time when that Bruin team was really rolling. It was – he was so much fun to play for. Uh, I'll tell you sort of an off-ice story. That with grapes, Don used to live about a half a mile from me down the street in a town north of Boston. And I was only the second-year second, second year player, but he used to make me drive to the rink with him. And he, on the way to the rink, he would practice his pregame speeches for that night. On, on the way back from the, on the way back from the pregame skate, 
he'd always stop at the Kowloon Chinese restaurant, have two Budweiser's while he while he waited for his order to go, and then he he'd order uh he'd order spare ribs for he and I to eat on the rest of the ride home. <laughs> so that was our game day <laughs> ritual. But you know we're driving in one day and uh, he sees this weed on the side of the road. It's just it's a very narrow median strip on a busy highway. And he starts to talk about the weed every day. He said, look at that weed. That weed's got character. That weed could play for my team anytime. And every day we'd walk by, we'd go drive by, and he, he never failed to mention the weed. So it's now April, and we're about to get into the playoffs. And what happens in April? The, the street cleaning crews come out to sweep up the, the streets and clean stuff up. And Don saw them coming, and he, they were heading towards the weed, the weed. And he pulled over, and he said, Mike's get back there and get that weed before the street cleaning crew gets it. So I had to dodge traffic across like three lanes, straddle the median strip, a little metal median strip and gently pull out this weed by its roots and then dodge traffic going back to the, uh, going back to the car. We put it in the car, the trunk of the car. He drove immediately to a gas station, wrapped it up in, in wet paper and brought it home and planted it in his garden. So, that's how he felt. That's the way he worked. If he was he was loyal to you, he was loyal. A couple of weeks later, I said, "How's that weed doing in the garden?" He said, oh, "Mike, I hate to tell you, Rose went out and weeded the garden, and that went with it." <laughs> he he was a beauty, man. I, I always remember uh, the too many men on the ice penalty in that game, and, and the media asking him what happened, and his response was, "Yeah, you want to blame you want to blame me." He said, "If it wasn't for me holding three other guys back, we'd have had eight or nine guys out on the ice." I mean, he, he, he always found a way to to, to stay colorful and, and stay uh, amusing. And I always thought a guy like Cherry survived the National Hockey League because of his candor and because of the fact that he was their kind of guy. And you know, in those years, maybe when it wasn't as good, and you may remember when he went out to Colorado to coach. And he had Hardy Astrum, Nick, a.k.a. Hard to hit Hardy Astrum as his goalie. And, and he found a way to, to make that work to a point where the team was entertaining. They weren't very good, but they were entertaining. And, you know, the league misses guys like that. I don't know if they have that opportunity anymore because they're, they're such under the microscope. Their shelf yeah, life is are. so short. It's really hard for them to see character and personality. Yeah, that's a different era. And with the – all the social media platforms that you have, uh, people have just gone underground for the most part. Are what you get is sort of canned moments from different people that they want you to see, not what comes naturally. But you know, Graves' greatest attribute was that he found guys that would play for him, and if he didn't think you'd play for him and play his way, he had no use for you. When I first got called up, I was playing in the American Hockey League I was in New Haven it was on a uh, on a Tuesday night and you know that's a long haul to get back to Rochester so they called they called me and told me I was coming up to play on Wednesday got in about three o'clock in the morning uh had a couple hours sleep and headed to Buffalo thought I was playing pretty well for Don and he comes to the end of the bench and whispers in my ear you college commie pinko inappropriate homophobic slur what are you doing hit somebody <laughs> so, he did it like three times and it was just 
I just couldn't believe it. But finally, we got on the same page, and we 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 didn't do anything but laugh for <laughs> my three years with Don Cherry. It was just so much fun. You know, it's funny you bring up the college thing. You know, you playing at Colgate. There were a few more college guys circulating in the league. But, man, if they knew you were a college guy, there was never a day that you probably didn't hear somebody remind you that you were a college guy compared to that Western Canadian raw-bone guy coming off the farm to play hockey. Oh, you're, you're spot on with that one. When I My first training camp, um, they were vicious. I, I College people were a little bit more enlightened in some ways in, in training methods. So I, I worked out extraordinarily hard and I was in much better shape than a lot of those guys who worked summer jobs or just thought training camp was the time to get into shape. There were many days when people came up and whispered to me, slow down, kid, you're making us look bad. Slow down. You're making us look bad. And I remember being in a stick fight with Wayne Cashman early Ooh. on. And I'm thinking, here's my, here's one of my boyhood heroes of just a couple of years ago. And now he's, He's got his stick with a blade turned over, and I'm thinking, is this going to be my last practice? <laughs> By the way, Cashman, I, I always remember him as a guy, if the puck went in the corner, he was always going to come out. I've never seen him not come out of a corner or along the boards where the puck was, and he didn't have it when it was all said and done. No, he, he was uh, he was tough as nails and, and uh, courageous as anybody. I remember a time in 1980 when – we were playing the Islanders and we had a bench clearing brawl and somebody had hit uh, Lorimer, or Bob Lorimer from the Islanders and really a sucker punch. Uh, and Gary Howitt came right after Wayne Cashman and he suckered Cashman and split him open. Cashman was near the end of his career there, but all of a sudden some switch flipped and he came back with just incredible performance in a one-on-one -on -one fight. It was a, uh, that that's the kind of stuff that I miss the vigilante justice, the, the immediacy of it. And, uh, but now with CTE and all that, it's become a different, a different kind of game. That wasn't the, the, the same Islander game where you had a chance to introduce yourself to some of the fans up close and personal, was it? No, no, it wasn't that, that was, game. Uh, it wasn't that Islander was, game. That was, I was the Rangers. Oh, okay. All right. A little later. All right. Hey, you know, as I mentioned, you, you played in a tough – you played in a, in a league when it was really tough at that point. Uh, and the skilled player and the college players were trying to find uh, find their way. When did it all click for you, though, as a player that said, A, I can play in this game, and B, I can be pretty good at it? Yeah, I was insecure starting out. Maybe because I was from college, I wasn't drafted. Uh, I had to work into well into October to get in my first season to get to my first contract. Uh, I thought in my second year that I'd earned a spot on the team. In fact, I was told to find a place only to be told the next day that I was going to be sent down. Frankly, I didn't handle that demotion very well, pouted a little bit, took me to the end of that second year before I finally got recalled. And uh, it was about... I mean, my first two years were in the Stanley Cup Finals against the Canadians. Lost in four games, lost in six games. And then we went to the to the Canadians again in the semifinals in, in year three. And that's when we had them on the ropes with two oh, and a half yeah. minutes to go caught for too many men on the ice. But around that time, you know, you go that deep into the playoffs, uh, you start to feel better about yourself. But it was Brad Park who 
you know, came up to me one day. I, I don't know if I was banging my stick or something and, you know, acting out a little bit. And he said, you know what, Mike, you're a good player and you'll be a much better player when you figure that out. And I kind of like shook my head, looked at him and I said, you know, that's pretty good advice. And basically he was telling me to have confidence in my game. And from there, I think uh, I did. You mentioned Brad Park. You know, had Bobby Orr not been alive and playing, Brad Park may have been Bobby Orr as far as how smart of a player he was. He could play all three zones. And I always felt he was overshadowed, even when he was playing in New York. Uh, he, he never got the credit that I thought he was due, considering what a good player he was. Yeah, and, and you know, isn't it a shame that he winds up on the same blue line with Bobby Orr and all they can get out of that duo is 11 <laughs> games. I mean, what a combination yeah. that could have been. You know, Brad had his own knee problems and slowed him down a little bit. But, hey, people finally realized what a good player was, a Hall of Fame player, and, uh, you know, and did it really with less than 100% in terms of his knees. It was uh, – I saw him on a number of occasions with a needle that you thought was – going to be used on a horse taking fluid out of it still managing to find a way to, to play a hockey game so a lot of courage a lot of skill and yeah i mean and everybody lived in the shadow of bobby orr mike milbury is our guest as we have a visit here on clavesonline.com now mike you know every great player has had a guy that might have given him a problem you know bobby orr and jacques laperia jacques laperier really played bobby orr tough uh, you probably saw it up close with Don Marcotte and how he used to make Guy Lafleur's nights challenging. Um, what about you? Was there a guy that you tried to maybe make sure his night was not going to go according to plan? We always had something for Gretzky. We had Steve Casper shadow him a lot. I played up against him a lot when I was, you know, in the league at the same time. I mean, you could get up for those guys, but there were guys that I just. I couldn't, I couldn't handle the speed. And one of them was Mike Gart was playing for Washington early on in his career. And he had me backpedaling every night. And I swear he scored every time he was on the ice against me. And I, I just couldn't figure it out against him. I thought I was smart enough to do it, but this is a, another guy that's, you know, scored a ton of goals and did it with some, with some great teams. And was a, he was just, his speed and, and change of speed was such that, I. I found it very difficult to, to defend. He, he's kind of so. What you're saying is you're kind of like the Ed Van Imp for uh, yeah. for Mike Gardner. Yeah, was, the, the night yeah, Berenson scored six goals, Van Imp was on the ice for all six of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the guys with the, the speed and, and particularly with with change of speed um, can really make it tough. Defensemen try to gauge themselves so they're meeting you at the blue line or just inside the blue line now little more conservative approach, I think, to playing defense. Uh, but when guys hesitate, give you that little head shift or stick shift, then you start to hesitate yourself and you and you start to back in. And there's no safety in that. Because if you back in against a good player like that, that gives him time and that gives him space. And when you give time and space away to good players, they're going to do damage. Yeah, they don't need much. They don't need much of a window, and and they can take advantage of it. You know, I, speaking of that, I always remember you, you mentioned that oh, the the game against the Canadians. You know, that little drop pass that Lemaire made, and and it had Gilles Gilbert just been out just a hair, he probably makes that save. 
but it was the perfect shot, the perfect time. And when you let the, the good players like that have that slight advantage, man, they can cash you in anywhere, anytime. I don't want to talk about that game anymore. <laughs> we'll move on. That, that, that's, <laughs> that's one of those stingers for a lot of guys that, that remember that particular game. But a great one, is, 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 is of course, and uh, we'll move on. Hey, I want to ask you about broadcasting because you've had a chance to do a number of things in that era. Uh, what do you like most, the booth or the desk? I, um, you know what? I, I'll confess. I'm not, I, I, even after all these years of flying, I don't like getting in the airplanes. So any place that I can stay on the ground to get to where I'm going to work is better for me, <laughs> but it's, they're two different animals in the, in the, in game analysis is just is instant. You don't have time to sort of pick your spots. Something has to come to you and then you have to address it. And you have to also, especially when I'm working with one of the greatest broadcasters of all time, Mike Emmerich, I don't want to get in his way. Um, and there are times maybe where I could have been, I can be more vocal, but I, I want the game to breathe. I don't want to, I don't want to smother the game with nonsensical talk. If I have something from my experiences that I can share or something that I can analyze about the game in question and I find the right spot, then I think it's time to jump in. And the good thing about in-game analysis is you start when they blow the whistle and you go home as soon as they blow the whistle. If you're in the studio, that's a different, it's a whole different animal. It's a marathon. You're there at, it's a marathon. You're there at four o'clock for four thirty or five o'clock meeting. You do a, at NBC sports, we do an hour pregame and then you have time during the game to watch the game, analyze the game and pick out with the help of a video guy sitting beside you or two video guys sitting beside you uh, to sort of craft uh, a small package that makes sense to a fan for in between periods. So you have a chance to reflect, reflect a little bit while the period's going on, you've got help in the booth. And then, uh, and then of course we have a post game of another 45 minutes or so. So it's a long, it's a long day, but it's uh and it's a different kind of a day. I, I like them both. Uh, I enjoy them both. And uh, God willing, I'll be able to do it for a couple more years or so. Stand by, folks. We've got more with Mike Milbury, folks. It gets even better, believe it or not. So stick around. We've got more of Mike Milbury here on ClavesOnline.com. Make sure you let one of your friends know what we're doing every day. We're having a lot of fun, and we've got some great guests, and you're going to hear the rest of Mike Milbury when we come back. Are you in the market to purchase a new or used vehicle? Munganass St. Louis Acura is here to help. Check out all of their inventory at stlouisacura.com. They'll bring the car to you, and they can also complete the entire process without you having to leave your home. Contact them today at stlouisacura.com. Coming up next, I want to introduce you to one of my friends from Ameren, Illinois. He's the vice president of gas operations. He is Eric Kozak. That's right. They're not just an electric company. They're also a gas delivery provider. Now, when you talk about smelling and locating gas and the potential for you to have a problem, what are some of the problems and some of the issues a customer could have aside from as the eventual, perhaps an explosion of some sort? So what are some of the other concerns you try and maintain? Yeah, so our number one concern is uh, calling 811 before you dig. 811 is a national number. People will come out and they will mark the lines for you and let you know where your gas service is. So if you're putting in a basketball hoop or you're putting in a bush, call 811 
says, if you don't call 811, you might have to call 911. <laughs> and we want to prevent that call. So that's the main issue is people calling 811 before you dig so you know where the pipelines are in the ground. Is there a charge for that? There's no charge for 811. <laughs> in a situation where you're going to do some work, as you mentioned, how deep do you have to go before you would hit a gas line? You know, I, if you're sticking in a shovel in the ground, you should call 811. You know, we don't, uh, you know, we put our uh, pipes in, you know, 24 inches for service and 30 inches, but landscape change over time. You know, different things happen. You don't know what the previous homeowner did. He might have took a bunch of dirt off. So if you're going to stick a shovel in the ground, you need to call 811 before you dig. And I just want people to know that, you know, natural gas is a clean, reliable, safe fuel. But like any source of energy, it can be dangerous. So if you do smell gas, you know, pick up the phone and call us. We respond 24-7, seven days a week, no charge, ever. And we respond on average within 22 minutes. Over 33,000 calls a year we get, and our average response time is around 22 minutes. And I think that's pretty good. I think it's impressive. So that's, that's the main thing is. And have your equipment checked out. And it's a wonderful product you can use for many, many years worry-free. You, you've coached, you've been in the front office as a general manager. Uh, and one of the things we talked briefly about, the coaching. Um, why do coaches in the National Hockey League have such a short shelf life? And what do you think is the common denominator on why guys just don't seem to be able to click with players? You, you mentioned how Don Cherry would have a few guys, hired hands, that he would take anywhere, anytime. I remember Mike Keenan was that sort of coach. But those guys had a little bit more staying power. Why don't we see that today? It's an excellent question. I'm not sure I have the answer to it. I think there's um, there's always been an impatience level uh, with coaches and sort of they probably get more blame and less credit. Uh, we used to talk to Harry Sinden, a great coach in his own right, and we sort of said, well, where, does, where does the coach fit into the scheme of things? He's clearly not as important as your best players, but somewhere around fifth or sixth on the totem pole after your goaltender, one or two defensemen and two or three forwards, he's, he's got to be there. He's got to find a way to reach out and touch each individual and still command the respect of the entire team when he walks into a room. We used to talk about what, what are the factors – that make for a good coach and conditioning certainly was there. That's easy enough. Discipline was, is in that category, a little tougher. Nobody likes to be a real hard ass and address players all the time, but you know, there are different ways to get to discipline, but discipline's in that category. But the art form of coaching is motivation. You have to give guys a reason to play every night. You have to make sure that they're ready to go. You have to see, you know, when there might be uh, a game that looks like it's going to be a trap game. For for example, we my first year coaching um, the, the Bruins, we were in Hartford for a game that we won, and we were coming back home for a Thursday night game against Calgary, who happened to be having a heck of a year as well as us, and yet we were in first place in the league. So I gave the guys, because we played Hartford the night before, I gave the morning skate off, and I went in for whatever reason to look at some film. And I got the call from the front office. And, you know, I I didn't see it coming. I mean, we're, we're first overall in my first league. We're great. 
and everything's going great. So I just went in there innocently thinking he had something to offer. And Harry Sinden sat across the desk and he said, so you think it's over, don't you? You think you're already on break. If you think you're on break, what do you think those guys think they're doing? They've already made their plans for the beach. They're going, they're going someplace warm. And so you've gone someplace warm already. You better get these guys ready. You've got no chance to win this game. Man, I laughed in a sweat and a huff. I didn't know, like, I felt like I was hit with a shovel. But he was right. And so I got in at 5 o'clock for the 7 o'clock game, closed the door, kicked the media out, went on a rampage around the room, and nobody knew what. I did the same thing to, to them as Harry did to me. I just hit them with a shovel and, and got them ready because it was a trap game. And you know what? We wound up in a 1-1 tie in one of the great games that we had all season. Uh, but you got to be ready to motivate people. Know when there's a there's trouble ahead. Know when somebody's relaxing. Know when somebody needs a pat on the back. That's a full-time job, boy. Well, you know, and, and it's interesting as you bring that up. A coach doesn't have the tools that he used to have with regard to motivation. You know, you, there was a time you could bag skate a guy to get his attention. But now because of the way practices are and travel and everything, you don't have that much. And then you'll have a guy that says he loses his legs. You can't yell and scream at a guy every night because he becomes immune to it and uh, they can become sensitive, not to mention there are enough guys around who know how to get a guy fired. So your your tools of motivation have been limited. So what's the next step? How do you get a guy's attention in this day and age? I believe that you, you have words are your tools. Really, you can't. You can't embarrass anybody anymore. People are so easily embarrassed. <laughs> We're in the age of sensitivity, and you certainly can't hit them over the head with a media stick. That won't work. So basically, you have to become a mentor. It's a softer, quieter type of coaching. That doesn't mean you can't use the stick once in a while, but the stick has to be used when everybody knows it should be used on certain players and, and that you have to discipline people. But if you result to benching a guy, you've, you've, in a way you failed. If you resort to media bashing a guy, in a way you failed. I mean, maybe your last resort, maybe you think you've pulled out every trick in the book to try to get to somebody, but the, that's ultimately not your your best weapon your best weapon is your your words I, I once gave a coaching job to a friend of mine and uh and the, the only thing i gave him was a dictionary i said this is your this is your toolbox use it you know when you, when you talk along that line you, and you talk about coaches I, I craig baruby comes to mind former player tough guy uh, walks with a big stick but seldom uses it. But when he does, everybody pays attention. And he's done a couple of different things. Maybe he doesn't uh, play a guy as much in a game or maybe he's a healthy scratch. And then there's those times where he'll just close the door and, and just light everybody up. Uh, there's something to be said for a guy who's been there, done that, and been on a bench from time to time where maybe he didn't play a lot in the third period but he was paying attention that gets those guys through. And I think some of those guys have turned out to be pretty good coaches along the way. Oh, he did an incredible job with the, with the blues as we'd all would acknowledge. Looked like he was point on heading towards another deep run in this year's playoffs until all this nonsense started. But yeah, I mean, he 
was tough as nails. He was attentive. He was a team guy. He looked out for his teammates. He listened to his coaches. I had Craig for a short time when I was manager in, in New York, and he, he was just a pleasure to watch uh, operate. I mean, worked hard at every practice, showed up to play for every game. You know, he wasn't the most skilled guy, but, um, you know, he clearly he had to soak it all in. And uh, the, the Blues team that won last year earned it. I mean, they, they deserve to win. I mean, they held, they got a little lucky in Game 7 early on. Bruins had a pretty good press on for most of that first period. And then uh, the Blues got a goal late and, and a second goal late on a, a miscue by Marshan. But it, it was a team that throughout that series, their big defensemen were able to close out the Bruins. It was... It was an impressive display of, of team defense and, and defense by defensemen in particular. And although Bennington didn't have the greatest of series, he had the most timely of series, especially in Game 7 early on when they needed him most. So Barubi had it going together. He had them believing. Uh, he had them operating on a defensive level first and with the size of their defensemen and, and the electricity of Bennington's performance, they got it done. But he deserves full marks for what he's done. Looks like he's going to be a good coach in this league for a long time. Well, let's hope so. Hey, Mike Milbury, before we get out of here, I want to run down a couple of things and just get your thoughts. Uh, best player you ever played with in a Bruin uniform? Ray Bork. Uh, I mean, what did he, 22 years, and I don't know if he made the all, first or second all-star team. Almost all of them, if not all of them. Uh, he was uh, – in incredible shape. He wound up finding a track coach somewhere in Quebec. We worked with Ben, I forget his last name, but he worked hard every summer. Uh, I remember the first practice that Ray came pudgy little 18 year old. And I looked at him and I, and I watched him play in his first scrimmage. And I said, Oh my God, this guy looks, he looks like Dennis Potvin on day one. It was, it was remarkable. There was no more consistency. And, one other quick little story about Ray. We, we were playing a tough series against Hartford Whalers, and he was out of that series with a hip problem. And so we wound up 3-3 playing the game-clinching game seven at home. And uh, it's 5 o'clock, and into my office walks Ray. He said, I think I'm okay. I think I can, might be able to play. I just went out for a little skate, and it seems like it's all right. He hadn't been on skates in two weeks. And... So I said, okay, hey, who am I to stop you from playing? <laughs> Lace them up, let's go. First shift, makes a beautiful pass up the wing. We take a one nothing lead and didn't look back. And it was a it was it was a head scratching, marvelous performance by a great athlete. All right, best player who you've ever played against. Well, I'm gonna get in trouble by answering this one probably. Uh, Mario Lemieux. Uh, so, deference to Wayne Gretzky, uh, Mario went through so much in his in his life, including about cancer and back problems and all that stuff. But his size, his vision, his hands—he uh, was—he was unstoppable for me at some nights. I mean, you could throw the kitchen sink at this guy, devise any kind of plan for him, and he'd find a way. To, to make something positive happen. Uh, for me, uh, 
it was Mario Lemieux. See, you know, I, I'm one of those guys when they talk about the greatest, I always go or Lemieux and Gretzky. And I always get an argument from people. And Wayne Gretzky's got every record and certainly deserve it. But I would just think physically Lemieux would be just a real tough matchup for people every night, especially when he's healthy and he's right. And he would come off the ice like he didn't even break a sweat and he'd have a pair of goals in his pocket. So uh, I, I wouldn't disagree with you too much on that one. All right, you you were a guy who, who had no problem having triple digits and penalty minutes during the course of a season. Uh, toughest hombre you've ever faced and the one guy you would even nudge a teammate to and just say, hey, that's not a guy you might want to mess with. <laughs> there were a lot of them. Uh, certainly Schultz was in that category. The only fight I had with him, so I came out of a penalty box. He's now with L.A. And I came out of a penalty box to be in a big brawl, and I jumped him from behind, <laughs> and I strangled him until I, like, I thought I was going to kill him. He actually wrote about it in his book, and he, he was more frightened than I was, but my <laughs> actions were dictated by fear. Ben Wilson from the fire. Scott Stevens early in his day and there was a guy in St. Louis way back when who had, I'm sorry to say uh, uh, an early demise Bob Gassoff was one tough guy and uh, there's a whole bunch of Bruins I can put in that category but you know the guys whose eyes started to roll back in their heads those are the guys that I didn't around. you know I'm thinking of John Wensick I'd, I'd put him in a, and he was a teammate of yours, but he was a guy that, you know, once <laughs> well, you, once you he, got him going, then it was battle stations for sure. John once told me the story of when he was in the minor leagues playing for Providence or Rochester at Providence. And he said he got in a fight with a guy and he put his finger into his eye socket. And he said, I felt behind the eyeball, Mike, I could feel the fingers <laughs> or whatever back there. And he, I talked to him and said, so should I do this? And <laughs> and finally, he said, I had to let him go. So, uh, uh, the other John Wensick story I have is like we were playing Minnesota, and Minnesota was coached by Glenn Sonmore, who was a tough guy in his own right. And they had they came back actually in the playoffs and beat us, I think, later on that year. But uh, they hadn't found their way. At one point, there was a pretty tough game against Minnesota, and John went over to the Minnesota bench and stood there, skated up, and put his hands towards the bench and said, come on, everybody, I'm here, let's go. And I, I idiot that I was, I was standing like 10 feet away from him. I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> and you know what? It's funny because you can go on YouTube and watch that. And I've told people that story. And, you know, people kind of give you the eye roll like you got to be kidding. And then when you show it to them, and you say, and then they look at you like, "Holy cow!" I mean, what, what an uh -huh. era, and, and what a guy in John Wensick, and what a guy is Mike. Yeah, what, what a what a wonderful man he is too. He's been a uh, he's had a good life, I think, in St. Louis, and yep. uh, and I miss seeing him. Well, he's a wonderful person. Hey, Mike Milbury, you're a wonderful person for visiting with us today. Uh, we could get on and on and on, but I know you've got chores to do at home, and we don't want to yeah, take you away from that. <laughs> And with I those, got a roast beef to cook. There you go. And those youngsters, man, they expect dinner on the table at, at a certain hour. So we don't want to we don't want to get you out of that routine every night. <laughs> and you know what? Get it before it's gone is the way it used to be said in my house. Hey, this has been great, man. I, I really appreciate your time. Uh best of health and safety to you and your family. And I can't wait to see you back here in St. Louis, hopefully for another Stanley Cup final. All right, Mike, you too. Thanks. Thank you, sir.